life can get messy. Anybody relate to that? Uh, a true statement that I think we feel the thrust of at Christmas, maybe more than at other times. The reality of living in a broken world full of broken people. There's a lot of mess everywhere. And it can be surprising, this mess that we encounter in life. A couple of years ago, uh, we had just moved into our house. Actually, three years ago, this Christmas, we moved into our house, having moved here to Irving. And we brought our two dogs with us, Lucy and Elfie. And I have a picture of them, uh, Lucy and Elfie there. Lucy is the Shih Tzu up top. And Elfie is the, the Karen Terrier below, the Karen Terrier like, the, like Toto from The Wizard of Oz. And uh, Lucy is the focus of this story, the Shih Tzu up top. I have to be very careful how I say that in a pulpit. And um, uh, she's a rescue, Lucy. And she has uh, separation anxiety. And, I mean, real separation anxiety, which has led her in our household to be proclaimed the most expensive free dog in the history of pet ownership. Uh, one day, we had left our home, a brand new home, and somehow Lucy had gotten shut into Jordan I's bedroom. And anytime she's separated from Elfie, she will do whatever she can to get back to Elfie. And so she tried to claw her way out of our brand new bedroom. And here's what it looked like when I got home. Um, that 18-pound dog pulled up our carpets. And I don't know if you can see, the framing around our door is pawed out and chewed up um, from hours, dedicated hours of trying to get out of our room. Needless to say, this mess was a surprise to me when I got home. I knew when I walked in the door and both dogs were not there to greet me, something was wrong. And it was overwhelming. I was overwhelmed because it was surprising and it was costly, the mess that Lucy had made. So here's my question for you. Have you ever felt like your life looked like that? Something surprising happened, something costly happening that, that you didn't account for, and it changed the course of your day. Sometimes we get caught up in life's mess because of the sins of others, but sometimes because of our own sin. What I want to do this morning is talk about how to deal with the messes that life can bring. The messes that sin, the wake of sin, can leave behind. Directly from the story of David, he shows us how to deal with situations in life when our life feels like what our bedroom looked like on that day. As we continue studying the story of David, we see even more consequences from his sin. We see even more of the, the mess and the wake of the mess that he has made, as if the warning against sin wasn't strong enough last week. As we studied the interaction between David and Bathsheba and Nathan's confrontation of David's sin, the Bible is going even further as the story of David continues. The Bible wants you to see the pervasiveness of sin and how the consequences of our sin 
the mess of our sin can linger far after the moment of sin occurs. Because now, as we continue in the story of David, we see the sins of David repeated in the lives of his sons. You see, the sin of David didn't just cost him one son. As we read the story of David and the chapters that follow David's encounter with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12, as we, as we read chapters 13 all the way to 18, we see that the sin of David cost him three sons. Not just one, but three sons. In 2 Samuel 13, we find the story of Amnon, the son of David, an heir apparent in Israel, and his half-sister Tamar. Amnon is the, the child of promise now, the heir to the throne, and he begins to desire lust after Tamar, who is the sister of Absalom, another son of David. And in a manner similar to David, Amnon calls to Tamar, desires her, and then the Bible says he rapes her. It's interesting how the Old Testament intensifies the language here in the story of Amnon and Tamar. When we read the story of David and Bathsheba, we didn't really know fully, we can guess, but we didn't know Bathsheba's demeanor or her, her interaction with David when he called for her. But Tamar's is on the page. She resists Amnon's advances, and in his strength, he forces himself upon her. Absalom hears about this, this violation of his sister, and he begins to avenge or devise a plan to avenge his sister, to take justice into his own hands, because it seems like even though David hears about this violation of his daughter, he's not going to do anything about it. He's angry, according to verse 3 of 2 Samuel, it's not chapter, that's not verse 3, according to 2 Samuel 13, he's angry about it, but he doesn't do anything about it. Because... Amnon is the firstborn. He loves Amnon, and perhaps maybe he sees a little bit of himself in his son. He feels disqualified maybe in some ways to address a sin that he himself has committed. And so Absalom decides to take matters into his own hands. And he's patient. He waits for some two years after the, the rape of his sister, and he sets a plan in motion. He convinces David to let him take all the sons of David to a sheep shearer and the, the sheep shearer festival. Apparently that's a thing. Sheep shearing festival. I know, Amy, you've probably been to one of those, right? No? No? Okay, yeah. So many people apparently in this time celebrated the shearing of sheep, and there was a lot of activity after and a lot of drinking. And at this festival... Absalom gets Amnon drunk, and then he has his men kill his brother who raped his sister. And then all of a sudden, Absalom now is the heir apparent. He's the one now who will sit on the throne of Israel. That murder and this plan, some two years in the making, sets in motion a series of events that led Absalom then to seek to steal the throne from David before David passes. That sounds familiar too, right? A, a throne promised to someone else or, or a king on a throne being threatened by someone else trying to get that throne or promised that throne. Absalom flees 
after he murders his brother, fearing retribution from his father, and his father keeps him at a distance. He welcomes him back into Jerusalem, but not into his home. You see David there interacting with Absalom in a different way than God interacted with him. He allows him to come back, but he's not restored. And this does not sit well with Absalom, who begins to set in motion this plan to take the throne from David. Absalom uses his appearance. He's handsome and, according to the Bible, has flowing locks of hair. And he uses his position to begin to turn the hearts of the people of Israel against his father. We see this in 2 Samuel 14 and 15. He lives among the people. He walks with them. He speaks with them. He, he offers counsel to them, but not for their good, all in an effort to manipulate them so that they will begin to love him more than they love his father. Saul's kingdom was threatened by David, and now David's is threatened by Absalom. But whereas David waited on the Lord, he would not take matters into his own hands. Absalom trusts in his own ability to take the throne for himself. Absalom convinces enough of the people and enough of the warriors to make himself king. And in a bit of irony, he's announced as such in Hebron, which is the first place that David reigned in Israel. We see that in 2 Samuel 15, 10. And when David hears that the hearts of his people are now with Absalom, he flees. He flees. He leaves Jerusalem until the rebellion against him is squelched and Absalom is ultimately killed, ensnared by the very hair that he used to manipulate the people of God. The wake of sin. David loses three sons. Three sons. Because of his sin. What I want to focus on this morning is the moment of fleeing. The moment in the midst of Absalom's uprising that David leaves Jerusalem and wanders into the Judean desert. There's a great picture in chapter 15 of David leaving Jerusalem, going into the wilderness, climbing the Mount of Olives, and weeping. Weeping for what he has lost. Weeping for what his son is about to do. And in the midst of that fleeing, in the midst of that weeping, David writes Psalm 63. And I want us to read Psalm 63 together as we think about all that David has lost and what he is feeling and grieving in that moment, what he is lamenting in the wake of his sin. Here's what the Word of God says. O oh God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh, it faints for You. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. 
and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. David is in the wilderness. He's in the midst of life's mess, dealing with the wake of his own sin and, and the reality of a broken world full of broken people, especially in his family. And his response, his response in this moment of devastation, I think helps us understand how to respond when we encounter the messes of this life. What do you do when you enter into this kind of wilderness in your own life? What do you do when the brokenness of this world shows up either as a direct result of your own sin or by the sinful actions of someone else or just the reality of a broken and sinful world? How do you lament the loss of everything in a way that honors the Lord? Psalm 63 provides for us the answer. David's feeling the full effect of his sin. He's feeling unable to address the sin even in his own sons. And so he turns to a better defender. He, he turns to the place, the only place where true control and the midst of mess is found. He turns to the Lord. And this morning, I want us to see how to lament as David did in a way that honors the Lord. To express our grief, our sorrow over the mess of sin in a way that pleases and glorifies God. Because I think this is, a very, this is a very appropriate message for Christmas, oddly enough. How do you say that, Jared? Why, why is it important for us to consider how to lament in a way that honors the Lord, how to to, to grieve over the mess of this world in a way that honors the Lord at Christmas. Because firstly, Christmas comes out of a season of lament. It's, it's the answer to the groans of creation and the groans of God's people. You think about when Jesus shows up on the scene. Hundreds and hundreds of years of silence. God not speaking to His people since Malachi. And you know, the people of God have to be wondering, have you forgotten about us? We've transitioned through many other rulers. Now Rome is ruling over us, and we've got an emperor in Rome who's claiming himself to be God. We're oppressed by this people. God, have you forgotten us? God, where are you? And in, and in the midst of that darkness, into the midst of that mess, God sends his son. Christmas is an answer to lament. Christmas is an answer to the mess that we have made of this world. That's a, that's a primary reason, of course, but secondarily and more personally, Christmas for many is, is still a season of despair. We can ignore the fact that while we're, we're proclaiming joy to the world, there are a lot of people in the season of Christmas who do not feel that joy, who are more overwhelmed by grief more overwhelmed by brokenness, more overwhelmed by what they have, have lost, or loneliness, or feelings of emptiness than they are the promise that God has given to us in 
Jesus. And it's good for us to be reminded that Christmas and the promise of Christmas, the joy of the coming of Jesus, is meant to speak to that very lament. This, this holiday, this, this season of focus is meant to speak to the very despair and brokenness that you may feel in this moment. The, the loneliness, the lostness, the emptiness. The story of Jesus, the coming of the baby, the child, Jesus, is meant to speak to that very thing that you are feeling in this season. So while it's certainly natural and good to grieve, over the consequence of sin and the feeling of loss that it can bring, the Bible wants us to grieve with hope. To allow our, our lament to be turned to worship. That's what Christmas is all about. To remember that wherever you are, whatever brokenness you feel, God is not distant. He is with us. And He has not forgotten us. Rather, He has sent His Son to us. Remember the promise of Scripture in Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. David writing again, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. God is in the business of turning our mourning into dancing. Even in a Baptist church, yes, it's biblical. God is in the business of turning our sorrows into joy. And that's what Christmas is all about. You may feel sorrowful in winter. You may feel sorrowful in the holiday season when you look at all that you do not have. But when you consider all that you do have in Christ, it can take those moments of sorrow and turn them into joy. So let's press into it a little bit more. How does Psalm 63 and David's reaction here help us find joy in the midst of despair? How does it teach us to lament the mess of life in a way that honors the Lord? Four lessons here from Psalm 63. Firstly, Psalm 63 tells us where to cling in the midst of a mess. When you're feeling the, the mess of this world, the brokenness of this world, when it begins to overwhelm you, Psalm 63 tells you where to cling. Verse 1, O oh God, my God. In this moment of despair, I'm going to seek you, David says. Verse 8, my soul will cling to you because your right hand upholds me. As we've said, the reality is this. And I think you can identify with this. Sometimes life stinks. Sometimes life is overwhelming and we can get swept up into it. We can get swept up into the mess of this world. The question is, what do you do when you feel yourself going under? Where will you cling? And David says, I'm going to cling to the Lord. Some years ago, I, when I was a young adult pastor in Houston, I would take uh, my, my young adults white water rafting in the summer, we'd go up to Tennessee and we'd stay in Gatlinburg and then we'd drive down and float the Ocoee, which is where they did the white water, white water portion of the Olympics in 96 when Atlanta hosted them. It's an incredible river, really, really great rapids. And if you like white water rafting, it's an incredible place to go and do that. And as we 
We're preparing to go down one of the, the largest portions of rapids. There's two major ones back to back. The, the guides that we were with pulled us to the side and they began to tell us what we needed to do if we fell out in the midst of that rapid. Firstly, don't try to stand up. Because if you've ever seen the Ocoee when it's drained, it's, it's fed from a, a, a dam. Uh, if you've ever seen the Ocoee dr- drained, there are major, massive rocks. Very, very sharp rocks. Because guess what creates rapids? Water going over rocks. And if you stand up, it's very possible, because those rapids are very strong, that your foot will get stuck, and either your leg's going to break, or you're going to drown. So don't try to stand up. Flip on your back and float. That's what you need to do. And then you need to look for a rope because we're going to send down one of our people on the other side of the rapid and we're going to throw a rope across. And if you get to the point where you get overwhelmed or you don't know what to do, all you need to do is look for the rope because if you're on your back, you can see the rope and when you grab it, we're going to pull you to safety. Sure enough, I had two or three of our young adults get bumped out of their whitewater rafting raft. And they were panicked. Some of them got bruised a little bit. One of them did not even get back into the raft to finish the ride. She said, I'm going to take the bus back to the place because I've had enough of this whitewater rafting today. I, I enjoy living and not breathing water. But here's what happened. Every one of them listened. Everyone turned on their back. And every one of them caught that rope. And even though it was scary, even though for a moment it may have thought, felt like they were going to lose their life, they were all brought to safety because they clung to the right thing. Now I want you to hear me this morning. David is saying to you, God has thrown you a lifeline. You may have fallen off the raft. The rapids may be sweeping over you, but you've got to look to the right place. And if you will cling to the, the rope that God has sent out for you, there is safety on the other side. There is hope. His name is Jesus. David says, I don't know the full effect of, or the reason why everything is happening. I'm looking back and I'm seeing that I have lost everything that God has given to me. I've lost my kingdom. I've lost my palace. I've lost my city. I'm losing my family. My own son is rebelling against me. I don't know what to do because I helped create this mess. Where do I cling to? I'm going to cling to my God because He's going to uphold me. He's the one who's going to save me. Friends, in moments of despair, when we feel the weight of sin, you've got to reach for the right rope. God is the only hope in the midst of your despair. Have you made Him your God? And are you turning to Him in the midst of this despair? And let me just say, if you turn to something else in moments of darkness, in moments of mess, it's a moment to consider whether you believe that God is truly all He says He is. Because it's in those moments of darkness where the reality and the truth of God are are seen most clearly. He's our, our very present help in a time of trouble. You reach for Him, 
He's there. And that gives you joy to know that He's there. Secondly, not only does Psalm 63 tell us where to cling in the midst of a mess, Psalm 63 reminds us of what we truly need. The, the moments of mess, the moments of loss, the moments of despair remind us of what it is that we truly need. There's nothing like losing everything to remind you of what you need. The story of Job and certainly the story of David. David has left it all. He's standing back and looking at everything that he has lost upon this mountain, this Mount of Olives going into the desert. He's weary, he's sad, he's thirsty, and he's hungry. He left so quick, he didn't even bring a lot of supplies. He's literally walking in a desert. And here's what he writes. Verse 1. I seek you because my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Just like the very land he's in. His, his physical surroundings, his physical reality begins to teach him some spiritual realities. Verse 5, there's only one thing that will satisfy my soul and that is the Lord. Everything that he's experiencing is leading him to the reminder that if all that he has is God, God is enough. If all that he has is the Lord, that is enough. Palaces, they don't ultimately matter because they can be taken away. Power doesn't ultimately matter because it can be taken away. Money doesn't matter because it can be ultimately taken away. Even physical food and water don't ultimately matter as much as being satisfied as, as having access to the Lord his God. Psalm 63 teaches us that there's a grace in the midst of loss. None of us want it. None of us go out looking for it. None of us would choose to be in the middle of a mess. But there's grace in the midst of loss. There's grace in the midst of a mess. When we lose something or someone, it reminds us of all that we have. More importantly, who we have. On this side of the cross, we have Christ. I've seen over and over and over again in my life communities that have been decimated by flooding. Who've lost everything they spent their whole lives building up. Who've seen their retirement wiped out by a stock market crash. I've seen people who have lost loved ones and yet in the midst of that grief, in the midst of that loss, they've shown incredible hope. They've shown incredible faith because they remember in the midst of that loss all that God has given them in Jesus. What they truly have in Christ. And that's a comfort that only God can provide. If you're in a season of loss or a season of despair, remember this morning all that you have in Christ we need to meditate on the promises of God. That's what David does in verse 6. When he's in his bed, and that's typically when moments of despair come, right? When you're trying to go to sleep, those, those feelings of anxiety and, and, and loss, they, they enter into our mind. What's, what's David going to do? He's going to meditate upon the promises of God. He's going to meditate on 
the Lord. We need to meditate on what God has given to us in these seasons of loss to remember all that we have in God and remember what we long for truly. You may miss the shelter of a home, but you have a greater shelter in the Lord. You may miss the comfort of food, but you have a greater comfort in Christ who satisfies the deepest hunger of your soul. You may miss the wealth, but you have innumerable riches in Christ Jesus that will last for all eternity. And no one, no power will take those things away. And let me just encourage you this morning. If you can't remember it yet, still cling to the Lord until you can. If you're in the the midst of a season like this and you can't remember the blessings of God yet, you cling to the Lord until you can. Thirdly, Psalm 63 calls us to trust the Lord to be our defender against these enemies who are trying to steal our hope, against the enemies of sin and death in our case. There's a distinction here in this story between the actions of David and the actions of Absalom. Absalom wants to take matters into his own hands. He manipulates He controls. He takes action, but David does not. David wants to wait on the Lord to move and to act. In a really powerful moment, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 25 and 26, here's what David says to Zadok. He says to him, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord... He will bring me back, and He will let me see both it and His dwelling place. But if He says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let Him do to me what seems good to Him. Isn't that interesting? That David doesn't try to fix things on his own. He trusts in the Lord to fix what only the Lord can And moments when we feel the wake of sin and the moments when we feel the the brokenness of this world, it's it's easy or it it becomes natural for us to try to fix things ourselves, to try to fix it in our own strength. But there's sometimes where we might not find an answer on this side of eternity to what it is that ails us. In fact, the mess can be a, a moment for God to remind us of our need for God to fix what only He can fix. To put us back in our place and to remind us who truly is the author of our blessing. Listen, no matter what you do, you cannot fix death on your own. No matter what you do, you cannot fix sin on your own. There are battles that we need fought that we cannot win on our own. We need God to work on our we have sometimes a moment of defeat, a moment of despair is an opportunity for you to trust the Lord, to do what only He can do, and to be reminded that our greatest enemies of sin and death, He has and will ultimately conquer in Christ. That defeat began in the first advent of Christ, and it will be carried through to completion in the second. Do we trust? that God will do what He said He will do. That He will will firmly and permanently defeat all of our enemies. 
enemies that we could not defeat on our own. Now, does that, does that mean that we don't do anything, Jared, until he returns? Of course not. Do what you know to do. Do what God tells you to do, just as David did. David sought counsel in this time. He sought wisdom at this time. The challenge is this. Recognize your limitations and that there are some things that only God can do and trust Him to do what He promised Him to do. The rest of those promises. Finally, Psalm 63 tells us where to cling, reminds us of what we need, calls us to trust the Lord for our defense. And finally, it leads us to the gift of worship. When the Lord begins to seal these truths in our hearts, and we begin to feel the relief of our lament. When we begin to feel the, li- the, the lift of our sorrow, it's important to let our tears of sorrow be turned to tears of joy. And to let our words of grief be turned to words of praise. David says, I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Verse 2, verse 3, because your steadfast love is better than life, I'm going to praise you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. And because of that, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you and meditate on you, I'm going to sing for joy, verse 7, because of how your soul or your, uh, my soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. It's important for us to worship on the other side of lament. It's important for us to declare not only that God has met our needs, but that now we are joyful because of how God has met our needs. Worship is the best cure for our mess because it reminds us that God is in control. We want to run. We want to blame. Instead, we need to meditate. We need to look upon the Lord in His sanctuary. And we need to declare His goodness for our own good and the good of the people of God. I think it's interesting that David says here, I've looked upon you in your sanctuary. He's longing to be in the presence of God and he's also longing to be among the people of God. Because all of us in this life will have a moment of mess. And it's important for us to remember and hear the testimony of faithful witnesses who have said that God was faithful in the midst of my mess. In my moment of lament, in my moment of sorrow, God met me there and He turned it to joy and He can do the same thing for you. Worship is a declaration of the glory of God, but it's also a provision for the people of God in the midst of lives mess. We need to cling to God, friends. We need to drink from His fountain. We need to trust in His plan and we need to worship. And that's how he turns our moments of mess into moments of worship, our sorrow into joy. And let's remember this morning that God has answered our greatest lament. He's turned our greatest moment of sorrow into joy through the work of Christ. He met us in our moment of of greatest desperation. That's what Christmas is all about, right? Grieving over silence, grieving over sin, not knowing if there would ever be a plan to redeem and reconcile us to the God who created us. And yet God answered. 
Do you remember another story of someone on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem and weeping? Didn't Jesus do that? Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children get together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you are not willing See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus had a moment of lament. He grieved over Jerusalem, but here's how he's different than David. He was not powerless to do anything about it. In fact, God sent him to address the sins of his sons and daughters to squelch our rebellion and bring us back into his presence, not at a distance, but fully restored. We like Absalom deserve to die for our rebellion. We like Amnon deserve to die for our abuse of each other. But Jesus was abused for us and he died for us so that we could be welcomed back into the house of God. And our greatest moment of lament and our greatest moment of desperation in a spiritual desert that would last for all of eternity, God spoke and sent His Son to turn our mourning into dancing. To turn our sorrow into joy. And that's why this season should not be one of despair. Even if you are in a season of grief. Even if you are in the midst of a mess. Rather, it's because of your own making or because of someone else's sin or just the reality of this broken and sinful world. This has to be a season of rejoicing. And it can be if you will let the Lord turn your sorrow into joy. That's what Christmas is all about. Taking our moments of lament and turning them into moments of praise. So that we can honestly say, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. We can sing, Long lay the world in sin and error, pining till He appeared and, and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Let me ask you, are you pining this morning in the midst of sin and error? All the world is. Are you feeling a moment of desperation? Well, I want you to, to feel the weight of your soul today. God sent His Son to save it. And I hope that brings you in the midst of your sorrow a thrill of hope and that you who are weary in a weary world can rejoice for yonder breaks a new and glorious morning. Oh, friends, let us live in this season like our King has come and that our greatest enemy has been defeated because it has. And even though we still feel the pangs of sin and death, until He returns, there is certain victory that we can cling to. Whatever despair you may feel this time of year, Whatever mess you find yourself in the midst of, will you let the Lord turn your sorrow into joy through the work of Christ? Because whatever your mess is, 
the work of Christ is greater. And the hope that he has provided shines brighter. Let us not live in lament only. Let's allow the Lord to turn our lament into a reminder of his provision and grace given to us in Christ. How can we respond this morning? Here's the first question. Have you clung to the Lord? Have you recognized your sin and your brokenness and your lack of hope without God? Because if you've never given your life to Jesus, your enemy will have defeated you for all of eternity. But in Christ, your eternity can change. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never seen the gift that God has given us in Jesus to turn your ultimate sorrow into joy, then let today be the day. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you can be saved from your greatest enemies, sin and death. You don't have to grieve without hope over the brokenness of this world. You can grieve with hope because of the promise of Christ. We want to make that available to you today. Just a minute, we'll have some ministers and pastors here in the front. We'd love to speak with you more about that. For the rest of us, how are we doing? Have we allowed ourselves once again to be overwhelmed by the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world so that it robs us of our joy in this season? Or in the midst of our grief, can we see the hope? In the midst of our grief, can we ask the Lord and trust that He will turn our mourning into dancing and our sorrows into joy so that when someone says, how can you rejoice this time of year in the midst of loss? How can you rejoice this time of year in the midst of so much chaos? How can you rejoice this time of year when you're all by yourself? You can say, I'm not by myself. God is with me. And this season is a reminder to me and to all of us of what God has done for us in Christ. And no matter where I find myself, there's hope. Wherever you are, would you bow your heads? Spend some time asking the Lord to help you know how to respond. You need to give your life to Christ. Love for you to respond right now in this moment. Take advantage of the gift that God has given you. For the rest of us, are we living in light of the gift that God has given us? Many in this room I know are feeling the, the despair of this world right now, maybe more than at other times of the year. Would you ask the Lord to turn your sorrow into joy by pointing you to Christ? And if you need it, there's a room full of people here who can testify to the goodness of God in the midst of the needs. Father, find us faithful, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing. You respond as the Lord leads for the will.